Welcome to the Lancet Respiratory Medicine Podcast. I'm Aaron Van Dorn, speaking to you from the Lancet's New York office. Use of intensive care unit resources in the United States outpaces that of all other countries. This increased use is not accompanied by superior clinical outcomes and is at times discordant with patient preferences. For more than three decades, both medical professionals and the public have worried that patients may receive non-beneficial care in U.S. intensive care units during their final months of life. Recognizing when intensive care admission will not restore a person's health and helping patients and families embrace goals related to symptom relief, interpersonal connection, or spiritual fulfillment are central challenges of the critical care practice in the United States. In this series, we identify major drivers of ICU resource use in the U.S. and review trials from the past decade to better understand the interventions designed to address these challenges and suggest new directions for the next generation of research. Today on the podcast is Dr. James Downer, head of the Division of Palliative Care at the University of Ottawa and a member of the Department of Critical Care at the Ottawa Hospital. He's the author of the comment accompanying the series, and I spoke to him about its conclusions. Dr. Downer, the series explores the increasing use of intensive care units in the United States for patients with a terminal or serious illness, and how we can better align ICU resources with clinical benefit and patient values. Can you give us an overview of why you think this potential overuse of the ICU has occurred, and how the U.S. differs from other countries with well-developed healthcare systems, such as Canada and the U.K.? I think it's clear that in the United States, the ICU is used for end-of-life care far more often than it is in many other developed countries. But I don't think that it is substantially different than Canada. Certainly, recent data suggests that the use of intensive care unit beds at the end of life in Canada is actually also quite high and also growing. In parts of Europe, the numbers are a little bit lower, but have been growing over time. So I don't think the United States is that much of an outlier for both the trends. Maybe the magnitude of ICU bed use is a little higher. I think in the United States, though, the drivers are pretty clear. Fundamentally, there is an economic model that favors the development of ICU beds and the use of ICU beds. For example, fee-for-service driven use of uh, technologies and procedures certainly drives this. The ability to bill more for ICU bed use drives this. There's a certain degree of excess ICU bed capacity. So once you make a bed, people feel to some degree that they would like to fill it. And if there's a patient who's kind of borderline and could go to a ward or could go to an ICU, you're probably going to send that person to an ICU if there's a bed available. There's also the social angle where um, some people have really given themselves over to a belief that patient autonomy really is best represented by a desire to do literally whatever the patient or family asks. And there can sometimes be a drive towards the most aggressive care available. And more recently, a great fear of rationing. Uh, So the idea that uh, decisions will be made for you and that there will be limited ICU resources that will make decisions for you. And I think some people feel very concerned about that possibility and want to try to head it off at all costs by both requesting and then making sure that there is available as much high-intensity resource as possible. So there are a lot of drivers. Many different inventions have been explored to reduce admissions or the length of stay in ICUs when it may be unwarranted or not beneficial. They've mainly centered around increased communication with patients and families about goals of care. What do you think will be the best way of delivering these interventions in future trials? This is a really the question that should be occupying our attention at this time. What is clear from the established literature is that in large observational trials, people who receive interventions that promote communication, things like advanced care planning interventions and palliative care interventions, seem to be less likely to go to the ICU. But that's an observational trial and causality is not as clear in those trials. When they then go to try to do a prospective study, then the data is a little more inconsistent and a little more modest in terms of our our findings. It does seem that we are 
able to reduce this in certain situations, but not by as great a degree as we might hope. And certainly sometimes the findings are less consistent. At the same time, some studies have even shown potential and deleterious effects for, for family members of patients already in the ICU that perhaps being exposed to certain types of extra communication or being having to meet another person can be a little bit stressful for them. So there's certainly the caveats coming through there. What is probably suggested by the literature is that we need to do a little bit of a better job of choosing our patients. I think trying to do a very complex intervention for a large population is really not feasible. Trying to do a very basic bare bones intervention for a large population, an intervention that really isn't very tailored towards the needs of a specific person, but rather more generic. That's also probably not that helpful. So what we need to do is, first of all, tailor our approaches and take account of the fact that people who are dying with cancer maybe have different questions and different concerns than somebody who's dying on a frailty trajectory or somebody who has multimorbidity or somebody who has heart failure. So you need more tailored intervention. At the same time, you need more reliable triggers. So trying to roll something out on a large scale, you need to have a system that prompts people to do things, similar to what you might see in a study where a research assistant will come and sort of poke and prod and help identify the patients. But when you have busy clinicians in a clinical environment, they have so many distractors, so many other obligations that take their attention that it's sometimes hard to remember, hard to recognize that this is the time to do something. So I think a combination of good triggers, reliable triggers, automated triggers if possible, combined with tailored approaches to meeting the needs of that person or discussing their advanced care planning or promoting communication that's relevant to them, I think is probably the winner. One of the challenges highlighted in the series is how best to define success when researching the use of ICU at the end of life. What endpoints have previous studies used and are there better ones that we can use in the future? I think you're hitting on a really key point here, which is that there really our choice of metrics it may be very important in trying to decide whether something actually works. It's obvious that there isn't a single metric that captures all of the effects of advanced care planning or palliative interventions. What are we hoping to avoid? Well, we're probably hoping to avoid care that is unwanted, number one. We're hoping to avoid care that is not beneficial, number two. And we're also probably hoping to avoid care that is unsustainable or perhaps not cost-effective. If you want to try to capture the true benefit of, of an intervention, you probably want to get a collection of metrics that's going to get all three of these themes. Identifying things that are unwanted when people have had an opportunity to indicate that it's unwanted. Trying to come up with some relatively reasonable set of conditions where we just don't think that ICU is going to be a benefit or critical care is going to be a benefit to anybody. And then having some, you know, frankly difficult but important conversations about what is the truly cost-effective use of a limited or very, very expensive resource. I think that's a difficult conversation to have in many circles because it is sounding like rationing. What we need to recognize and appreciate is that rationing occurs all throughout medicine. This is not a new conversation to have at all. Choices of organizations and, and insurance companies and other funding agencies to choose to fund or not fund certain things, these are rationing decisions and they happen all the time. It's not a, an erosion of autonomy or it, it's simply a recognition of reality and frankly a, a very important conversation for society to have. The subject of death and where we wish to die is a difficult conversation to have and one most people avoid having until they have to. Do you think having more open conversations with our families and doctors earlier in the illness journey will help to avoid unwanted high-intensity care at the end of life? I think to a certain degree, it may help avoid unwanted or high-intensity or high-resource uh, high utilization care near the end of life. 
I think that we need to be a little more conservative in our estimation of what having these early conversations can actually achieve. I think it's important to socialize discussions of end-of-life preferences and wishes. There is one problem with these conversations, which was described previously as the Goldilocks effect. We certainly recognize that these conversations can often happen too late, but sometimes they can also happen too early, and there are harms to that. So, for example, when you have a conversation that can be difficult at a time when someone is in good health and facing some difficult decisions and somebody's still optimistic about the possibility that treatments might work and that their quality of life is something very is at a very high level that they would want to prolong. So then you, you get a plan put in place or a wish put in place, and very often this can take the form of even a very specific treatment decision like I would like CPR, I would like full resuscitation, I would like ICU care. And then that plan gets kind of set in stone. And then as the person proceeds through their illness trajectory, as the cancer comes back and becomes less responsive and the quality of life deteriorates, et cetera, nobody raises the question again. So you somewhat get anchored to a position that doesn't reflect the context of the current situation and that the patient really hasn't had a chance to think about it again and nobody's brought it up again because we checked the box saying advanced care planning done. The other thing is that people will talk about their location of preferred death and sort of say, well, I, I want to die at home. Okay, well, most of us, if we could, would like to die at home, but there's more to that. I would like to die at home in comfort. If I can't receive the therapies and treatments that, that would keep me comfortable at home, then I probably don't want to die at home. If my death at home is putting an unreasonable burden on my family members and is just not safely achievable, I don't want to die at home. I'd like to die in the hospital. So simply assigning a location of death as a sort of unqualified statement saying, I want to be at home, I want to be here. It doesn't take account of the context. And so we have to be a little bit careful about running around and getting everybody to write down instructions that we feel then honor bound to follow till the end of time, because that can certainly get us into difficulties. And many of us routinely see people who have had an early goals of care conversation. And then when they're much thicker, much later on in the illness course, and really there seems a little role for ICU and you ask the family, they said, oh, he's a fighter and he said he wanted everything done, but that probably isn't realistic and certainly doesn't reflect a more recent discussion. It's increasingly difficult to define care in the ICU that is non-beneficial or even potentially inappropriate. What future research is needed to help clinicians guide families through these discussions on whether an ICU admission is the best course of action? I mean, this is a really important point, something to some degree we struggle with in, in other aspects of medicine around the benefit of an operation or the benefit of certain procedures and medications. Straight up mortality, life or death is obviously important. Somebody's going to die and die no matter what, that's probably not a great thing as an outcome. But in terms of survival, there certainly, we have a lot of evidence from the United States now that people are quite quickly transferred out of ICUs to long-term acute care once they get over their acute illness but are still ventilator dependent. And when you follow those people out to a year, even though they survived ICU discharge, very, very few of them subsequently made it home or made it home in any degree of independence. Trying to integrate not only mortality, but also function and morbidity into your consideration of how someone's likely to do is really important. So how to communicate that as well to somebody in a useful way is very, very important. I think that's a, an important area for research. And then also how we resolve conflicts. So when you get into a situation where there is disagreements and you know, you're trying to do your best for everybody, but you're sort of, so to speak, stuck in and everybody's kind of anchored to a position, and it can become very challenging to resolve that. And I think increasingly we're seeing disputes around end-of-life care in, in critical care environments across the United States in Canada, around the world. And we are really struggling, I think, as, as a species, certainly as in every society, we have struggled to find a 
really good conflict resolution mechanism that everybody feels is reasonable and effective. And I, I just don't think we're quite there yet. And so having a, a sort of more complicated sort of medical legal ethical research program around developing a conflict resolution mechanism that everybody can buy into, I think that's going to be really important because as much as we want to define and, and come up with these hard and fast rules in, in critical care, we love protocols, right? Like we love hard and fast rules that we can follow and protocols that we can follow, but they don't always work. And when you get into a situation of conflict, despite your best efforts, despite the guidelines, despite clear criteria of who should or shouldn't go to the ICU, you're not going to be out of the woods. You're still going to have to be able to resolve disputes from time to time. And increasingly, we're seeing that's the case. Well, Dr. Downer, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Well, thank you so much.